We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We're continuing this morning with our look at Hebrews chapter 12. And over the last two weeks, we've seen a couple of ways in which we are encouraged to run with endurance the race that God has set before us. The first one was that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and so we're encouraged by those and the faith of those, particularly who have gone before us and run well. And then last week, we looked at the the need to remove hindrances, to remove every weight or the sin that clings so closely in order that we might run with endurance. This morning, we're coming back again and looking at a third principle here, um, which is perhaps a little bit more challenging to accept, and it's one that uh, I, I do believe impacts all of us, and that is the, the principle of accepting our course. Accepting our course. We are to run the race, if you look at Hebrews chapter 12, at the end of verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is not the race that we want to run, the race that we would like to run, but the race that has been set before us. That is to say that the race that you and I are running has a particular course, and that course may not have been the course that we would choose, especially even if you think about your life right now and the circumstances that you're living through. But we trust that that course has been set by our sovereign king and that he is the one who has asked us to run on this particular course or path. And this includes especially the sufferings, hardships, and adversities in our lives. It's quite easy to run when things are going well, but this exhortation to run with endurance, the race that is set before us, is particularly needed when we encounter hardship, adversity, and difficulty, or unwanted things in our lives. Think for a moment about the context of this letter written uh, to a group of people who we know were in some ways suffering and experiencing difficulty. We read or looked at last week the fact that they had, at the end of chapter 10, they had accepted the plundering of their possessions because they knew that they had a better one, a better possession. So clearly they were in circumstances that were not ideal and that were difficult. We'll look at verses 5 through 11 today a little bit, which reveal the fact that they were experiencing some unpleasant and painful realities as disciples of Jesus. Remember, endurance means to bear up under or to hold fast in the face of difficulty. When there are things in our lives that are that are uh, encroaching upon our ability to keep going, that cause us to be discouraged or want to give up, the, the exhortation to endure is needed in those moments because it means to bear up or to continue to hold fast under those kinds of circumstances. So the idea of accepting our course to help us think about how we can run with endurance includes especially hardships, sufferings, and difficulties. And this is a key to endurance, to running and finishing well because obviously these difficulties threaten our ability to continue more than anything else. I would encourage you to think about your own life, the context of your own life, even today. 
It probably won't be that hard, I don't think, to think about the hardships or the adversities that you're encountering. Or maybe it was a hardship or adversity or difficulty that happened years ago, maybe decades ago. Perhaps a, a great loss, a tragic loss of someone you loved. That has been an ongoing obstacle that has required a sense of need for endurance in your life. Those are the things that have the most capacity to cause us to step off the course, to slow down in the race, or to give up in the race. But we're called to accept our course. We're called to recognize, and this is challenging, that God can at times allow things to happen in our lives because of his greater purposes, the things that we would much prefer have never, to have never happened. And when we are in that place of acceptance, of dependency, of trust, and of faith, even when we can't understand, even when we still have real questions, even when we're overcome by grief and sorrow, when we can walk with him and run with him in that posture of acceptance and yieldedness, we are enabled then to press on and to endure in this race that he has set before us. If we don't yield in this way, I suspect that we will be tempted to be consumed by questions of what if and statements of if only. If only this hadn't happened to me. What if this had never taken place? What if this circumstance wasn't in my life right now? Then I, could, then I think, Lord, I could run. Then I think I could endure. Then I think I could trust you. And if we live in that what if and if only territory, it's very easy for us to begin to be consumed by resentment and anger and cynicism which can turn into fatigue and doubt and then resistance internally. And then we start to lag, and maybe eventually we just give up. The principle today is accepting our course. The strategy, verses 5 through 11, which the author of Hebrews understands, and we mentioned this last week, we can't change our circumstances. We don't have power I mean, sometimes we can, and we should, and we work toward that, but in, in many things, we, we can't. We are quite powerless. And what the author of Hebrews seeks to change in his hearers is their perspective. Their perspective. The standard perspective goes something like this, when we encounter adversity, difficulty, hardship, and pain. Well, first, when we don't encounter those things, we think, well, God, you must love me, and be blessing me, and I feel strong, and I can be strong in my faith, and I'm, I'm excited, and I'm overflowing with thanksgiving and a sense of goodwill toward you and toward uh, my fellow neighbors. But then when difficulties and sufferings come, that standard response goes something more like this. God, where are you? You're absent. Do you really see? And do you really care? And are you really good? Because if you were, how could you be letting this happen in my life? Job's wife, in Job chapter 2, expresses this standard perspective. Chapter 1, Job has lost all of his servants and his sons and daughters, his children. 
And his wife says to him in Job 2, verses 9 and 10, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. We laugh a little bit, but every single one of us understands, don't we? That response to suffering. Maybe sometimes we understand it all too well. Years ago, I was talking to a man who was a godly man, but he had had this debilitating physical condition for 25 years. And in a moment of honesty, which was very helpful, he said, sometimes I just want to curse God. A man who is faithful. And I think he was giving a glimpse into the reality of our own wrestling and struggling. This standard perspective is sometimes far too easy for us to embrace and live into. The author of Hebrews is encouraging a different perspective as he draws from Proverbs chapter 3. And it's radical, it's countercultural, and it touches on a part of the being and character of God that, honestly, we approach with a bit of fear and trepidation. And I don't think we'll do justice to it in just one sermon. But the perspective that the author of Hebrews is offering is these sufferings, these adversities, these realities of pain and difficulty in your life are not signs of God's absence, but rather they are signs of his fatherly presence and discipline. Look with me at the text, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Quoting now Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Now, I realize that the word discipline usually conjures up for us bad mental images of punishment, maybe deserved or not deserved. And that's what we often think about, so it's hard for us to hear this word. I want to shift the way that we think about this word one thing to say is that God has already punished our sin in full at the cross of Jesus Christ. Any ongoing discipline or admonition or judgment that we receive from the Lord is not punitive judgment, but rather corrective judgment. And this word for discipline that's used nine times here in Hebrews chapter 12 is the same word that's used in Acts chapter 7 verse 22 where we read, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. That word for instruction, it's not far from this word for discipline. Similarly, the word here for discipline is used, and in the ESV is at least translated as discipline, and the exhortation given to fathers in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. But notice that it's paired with another word for instruction. We're to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So think here of discipline, not as some kind of uh, vindictive punishment, but rather as a kind of training or a school that God, as your loving Father, has put you into, intended to embrace you in, that you might grow in a certain way. Discipline is a kind of training that your loving Father gives to you in your life. In his book on godly discipline, Tim Chester writes about the story of five young Protestants in 1552 who were returning from their studies in Lausanne, and they were arrested in Lyon. 
Calvin wrote to them when they were in prison and said, we're working as hard as, it, we're, we're, we're essentially exhausting all of our options to ensure your safe release. But all of those options failed, and they were executed as part of the Inquisition. Before they were executed, they wrote this letter to the church in Geneva. Very dear brothers in Jesus Christ, they said, since you have been informed of our captivity and the fury which drives our enemies to persecute and, affect, and afflict us, we felt it would be good to let you know of the liberty of our spirit and of the wonderful assistance and consolation which our good Father and Savior gives us in these dark prison cells. Further, we are bold to say and affirm that we shall derive more profit in this school of our salvation than has been the case in any place where we have studied. And we testify that this is the true school of the children of God in which they learn more than the disciples of the philosophers ever did in their universities. What a perspective on their adversities and difficulties, sufferings and persecutions. These are a school, did you catch that? In which we are learning more than we could ever have learned anywhere that we have studied. Joni Erickson Tata, whose story many of you know, became a quadriplegic diving in the Chesapeake Bay at age 17. She's now in her mid-70s and has had a tremendous ministry throughout her life, more often to families and people with disabilities, but also to anyone who suffers and experiences pain. She's been in chronic pain her entire life. And she, she said, suffering is the textbook that keeps teaching us who we really are. It is a school, this discipline, a kind of training ground, Think of it like more like basic training or special ops training in which you're being pushed to your limits in order that you might be formed and shaped in the right kind of way. Hebrews 12 says two things in particular about our inclusion in this training program. The first is that this kind of training, this fatherly discipline, legitimizes you as God's child. Look at verse 8. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And the second thing that's emphasized in our text here is that God uses this kind of discipline in your life and mine to make us more like him. Look at verses 10 and 11. Writing about earthly fathers, the author says, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good. Why? that we may share his holiness. That is to say that we might become like him, more like him. And then verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. That is to say that what the author of Hebrews is doing is radically challenging that standard frame and perspective and saying to his, his readers originally and to us through the Spirit's ongoing work that when we encounter this kind of adversity, trial, and difficulty, God is not absent, but he is lovingly present as a loving father even though our present experience is painful rather than pleasant, even though we'd rather not be walking through it right now, or rather it never happened, 
but he is present in the midst of it, working out his purposes. One of my favorite hymns is William Cooper's God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Cooper wrote this in 1773. He was a friend of John Newton's. Cooper struggled from mental illness his entire life. He was institutionalized three times. John Newton took him into his home because he needed a place of care and nourishment. But he was a brilliant poet, a man who had suffered much. And in his, uh, a line out of that hymn, that poem, goes like this. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And that's what the author of Hebrews is recognizing. This kind of discipline, this kind of training that the Father's putting us under, it doesn't feel good in the moment. It's painful in the moment. But when we yield, when we allow God to be working in us through those circumstances, it will one day produce in us a peaceful fruit of righteousness or harvest of righteousness. It will enable us to share his holiness. And this is the change of perspective that the author is trying to bring about in his hearers. God is working in you. He's working for you through these very difficulties in order for himself to be more and more alive in you and formed in you more and more. Therefore, look at verses 12 and 13. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. That is to say, don't forget that God is present in the hardships and therefore bear up under them so that his work that he longs to do in you, the formation of his character in you, will continue to happen and you will experience more and more of his grace. Run with endurance, the race marked out for you, even when that marking, that course, is not a course that you would like to be on. God is there and God is working. These things going on in your life? No, they are not a sign that God has forsaken you or that he's abandoned you. In fact, we're being challenged in this text to see them as quite the opposite of that. These are opportunities that your father has put on your course that you might become more like him. We are helped in embracing this perspective, which is challenging but is a perspective of faith, by seeing that the point of our lives is not to be at ease, it's not to be content, it's not to have security and safety and comfort and pleasure as much as we love those things. But the ultimate point of our lives is to bring glory to our Heavenly Father by looking more and more like His Son, Jesus. And because that's the ultimate goal, and because that's what God wants in our lives more than anything else, my question is, do we want that? then God brings things and allows things in our lives that will help us to grow on that path. That's God's highest aim for you. That's his deepest love for you. It's not that you would be comfortable and be, uh, live a life of ease and safety and security. His deepest aim is that you would become more like his son and that you would know his love and grace more deeply in your life. And therefore, he is willing to put you through things that you would never want to go through because he loves you. Probably in all of our lives, we can identify some of what those things are. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, God's rod is a pencil to draw Christ's image on us. Back to Joni. She said, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. There is a tremendous amount of depth in that statement, and in that woman, I must say. Phenomenal teacher. 
these are remarks that somebody shared with me recently from a convention that, that Joni was at in 2013. And in, that, in her remarks, she kind of gave insight into her own heart and prayers. And this is what she said. She said, God, when you said no to physical healing, you said yes to a deeper faith, yes to a deeper prayer life, yes to a greater understanding of your word. You purged sin from my life. You forced me to depend on your grace. You increased my compassion for others who hurt. You put complaining behind me. You stretched my hope. You have given me a lively, buoyant trust in you. You've given me an excitement about heaven. You've pushed me to give thanks in times of sorrow. You've increased my faith and helped me to love you more. Isn't that beautiful? Of a woman who has come under the discipline of her heavenly Father and shown us all a beautiful picture of what it looks like to accept our course. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis uses this metaphor of the artist and his masterpiece. And he says, you know, if an artist is just sitting on a park bench and drawing a quick sketch for a little child who walks by, I'll just draw the sketch and hand it off to the child and not think about it again. But if an artist is working on his masterpiece or magnum opus, he will sketch with the utmost of care and erase and sketch again and erase and try this shade and that shade. And if the canvas could talk back to the artist, the canvas would say, why are you treating me in this awful way? And the artist would say, because I'm making you into my masterpiece. And God is making you into his masterpiece. And therefore, he is allowing in your life admonitions and disciplines that are meant to grow you to become more like him. Every one of us here, if we are honest, would say we have all grown the most, haven't we, in our spiritual lives, in our discipleship of Jesus, through the hardest times of our lives. There's something about hardship and adversity that leads us to see just how bankrupt our own strength that we so often rely on is and how inexhaustible God's love and care and power and grace is for our lives. And it's only when we're walking through adversity and difficulty and challenge that we are most alive, in a sense, to letting go of our self-trust and then of holding on to him and seeing his provision the most. These are the times when we deeply grow, accepting our course, and let me nuance this in, in just a little way, because I, I think sometimes you can hear this admonition that we're given here in Hebrews 12, and we can think, well, does that mean that I kind of lose any dimension of lament or petition or of crying out to God from a place of pain? And I think so. I do think we, we need to nuance this a little bit, because the life of faith embraces two things that are a little bit in tension here. But I think it's important that we give them both a hearing. When we suffer in any way, we must remember that God is against evil. And we must never yield in such a way as to attribute evil to a perfectly good God. And for those who kind of quickly lean to that direction, that can be a danger. No, God is against evil, and he hates wickedness and violence. And he, he wants to liberate us from situations of evil and wrong that he, he sent his son into the world to rescue us from, that he might conquer evil. And one day he will come back and eradicate all evil from his creation. And it will be a new creation where there is no more pain and tears and heartache. God hates evil. 
And these thoughts, remembering this, can deeply encourage us as we fight on and press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And in the midst of these moments of hardship and difficulty, when we encounter evil in our lives, we rightly lament before God, even protest before for God. We weep over the brokenness of the world and over the way it impacts our lives and the lives of those that we love. Jesus said, remember, blessed are those who mourn. He actually encourages this kind of response. We protest right along with the psalmist that the world should not be this way. And we appeal to God's love and his character and his goodness and his hatred of evil. We appeal to him to intervene and to change these circumstances that are otherwise seemingly against his purposes and will. A purpose and will that is expressed most clearly on the cross. And this is an important part of our life of faith, of running well, of enduring, is this part of lament and protest that's right and good and stems and comes out of the wrestling of faith. It is authenticated even by Jesus. Next week, we'll take that exhortation in verse 2 on directly, looking to Jesus. But that's always the author of Hebrews' answer to our situation, is look to Jesus. But let's look to Jesus for a moment and remember that Jesus goes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and he meets with Martha and with Mary. And what does he do at the tomb? He weeps. He weeps. His weeping is a kind of protest against the brokenness of the world and its and evil and sin, and even death itself. What does he do when he's hanging on the cross? You remember he quotes Psalm 22.1 in the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a dimension of the life of faith that we need to be honest about and to embrace and to affirm that is important for us to run well. To not do this, to not lament, to not wrestle in this way with the reality of evil in our lives and in the world out of some kind of robotic submission to the sovereignty of God is to lose our humanity and to lose touch with a huge part of the loving character of our God who comes to redeem us from evil. We must protest and lament right alongside Jesus. And yet... This text and what it teaches pushes us in a different but equally important direction for endurance in our lives. And I would say one that's probably more neglected in the church today than that other side. And therefore a good and timely word for all of us. Peter says in his first epistle about the value of these kinds of sufferings in our lives. Though now for a little while... You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It produces these wonderful things in us. Our suffering becomes not a breeding ground for unbelief and anger, for faithful lament and protest, yes, but not for a, a, a breeding ground for unbelief and anger and cynicism and resentment. But it becomes, the suffering becomes the soil in which a beautiful faith and faithful and authentic witness can be brought to full belief. And we hold these two responses, the protesting on the one hand and the yielding on the other hand, together. They coexist in the life of faith as we seek to run with endurance the race marked out for us. And they both arise right out of the same heart of faith. Again, look to Jesus, 
protesting with his father in the garden. Father, if it's at all possible, please take this cup from me, yielding to his father in the garden. Yet not what I will, but your will be done. We saw the cry of dereliction, his protest on the cross, followed a few breaths later by his quotation from Psalm 31, into your hands, O Lord, I yield, I commit my spirit. They're both there. They're both real. They're both a dimension of this life of faith. They're both necessary. And yet here in Hebrews 12, we find the emphasis upon this, this reality of yielding, of submitting, of changing our perspective, to be willing to be in the hands of a father who admonishes and disciplines his children that they might share in his life even more. Let me offer you a few examples as we close. One is from the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Three times he says, I protested before you, Lord, to eliminate this thorn in my flesh. What Paul actually mysteriously calls a messenger of Satan, allowed by God. Paul's able even to see the fatherly admonition in the allowance of this trial and suffering in his life because he says, it was given me to keep me humble after such an exalted vision. And so after pleading and protesting three times out of faith, what does he do? He yields. He yields to this painful affliction that keeps him humble. He yields to his father's discipline in his life, and he begins to glory in it even. As Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, look, I will be all the more content with weaknesses, hardship, insults, sufferings, because when I am weak, then I am strong. There's that yielding dimension of faith. He accepts the course. A more recent but still distant example from Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest theologian to ever live on American soil. With spring of 1758, she had sent her husband Jonathan to go be the president of the newly established college in New Jersey that is Princeton to us today. Jonathan does what many would do, he got inoculated for smallpox, and two weeks later he dies, March 22, 1758. And Sarah writes to her bereaved daughter Esther. Esther had lost her husband the year before, leaving her with two young children, and she writes these words to her daughter after her husband has died, Esther's father. Oh, my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod of reproof and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband, your father, has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am, and love to be. Talk about accepting our course. Esther would never read those words. She died two weeks later, leaving behind two orphaned children that no doubt Sarah would have to probably take care of. Another more recent example, a young man I knew that had been diagnosed with an aggressive form of soft tissue cancer, who fought it for three years and then passed away. But he was an amazing example to me and to many others of a yieldedness to the course that God had asked him to run. 
And in a message that he shared before he died, he said this, the most important lesson that I'm learning is that I gain peace in my trials when I see the nail-pierced hands that control them. I'm able to embrace God's control over my life to the extent that I see his passionate love for me, to the extent that I see his extravagant love for me, to the extent that I see his costly love for me. I'm able to embrace his control over my trials. And then he got a bit more personal or direct and said, each of us, sooner or later, we're going to hit the wall. Where are you going to turn? Whether it's with raised hands or a raised fist, I implore you to turn to God. Only take time to behold the one you're addressing. Take time to look at the one you're speaking to. Those wounds were taken for your healing. far earlier than I or anyone who loved him wanted him to finish. But he finished well. And then I'll go back to mention my grandfather that I mentioned two weeks ago, my mom's dad, who died when my mom was only nine months old. He died at the age of 26, hospitalized for the last year and a half of his life with tuberculosis. My mom, his daughter, his only child being born while he was in the hospital. He only got to see her three or four times in the flesh before he died. He was going into a third difficult surgery for tuberculosis on June 27, 1944. And that morning before surgery, he woke up early, and at 6.15 in the morning, he wrote a, on a penny postcard the following words, which he then put in his Bible. He did not survive that surgery. He died that night. And my grandma didn't find this penny postcard until after his funeral in his Bible. He said this, another example of accepting our course. Darling, being only a mortal, but once saved by grace, I know not what God has in store for me in these coming days, whether pain and suffering here or peace and bliss with him. But my love, this I know, that going through this operation, I'm as safe as if I were the healthiest person alive who knows the Lord. Perhaps my rewards will not be as great as some, for which I am sorry, because I served not our Lord as greatly as I should have. If his will be that I remain here with you and Lois, that's my mom, give thanks and to enter in with me in prayer that I may be of greater service under our Lord's command. To me, you have been and are the sweetest and most loving and brave wife in all the world. Your love and devotion, because it is centered in Christ, has done much to bless my soul. Praise God, I will always love you. Be brave, dear, and lead Lois to Christ. I love her dearly. And then he signs it, Love, Harold. And then there's a little sentence at the bottom. I've seen a picture of this. And he writes, Lord, bless them both and keep them safe. And then his final words to write, Thy will be done. That's accepting our course. It is recognizing that the trials, adversities, difficulties, and sufferings which God allows in his inscrutable sovereignty in our lives are not evidences of his abandonment, but are means of his fatherly care to grow Christ in us more than Whatever you're walking through today, let me encourage you from this text to accept your course.
so run with endurance the race that God has asked you to run, trusting his fatherly care and giving glory to him. Father, I think we all wrestle with this perspective that the author of Hebrews gives us here in Hebrews 12. And I begin in prayer just asking for your forgiveness in my own life and on behalf of those gathered here for the ways in which we have pushed against the circumstances that you've allowed or the ways in which we have let them turn us into more and more fleshly people rather to more and more Christ-like people. God, give us the grace to trust you. Give us the grace to endure under your admonition. Lord, give us the grace to run with endurance this race that you have marked out for each one of us, whatever it has held, even and especially those things that we wish had never happened. And may you be glorified, O oh God, as we learn to yield to your May you receive praise, glory, and honor. Now, and when we arrive at the finish line, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.